If you're a local government enthusiast who's looking for fresh conversations over a hot cup of morning coffee or tea or while you're driving or walking the dog, you do you. You're in the right place. Welcome to the Local Gov Cafe podcast. Hosted by Susan Gardner and Ann Mitchell, this podcast is devoted to having conversations that matter, covering the full menu of municipal topics. You'll discover guests who bring insight and inspiration to the issues that drive and challenge communities. We'll be talking with leaders in policy, practice, consulting, and academia to put a spotlight on civic government and the people who make it all happen at the local level. Susan, how are you today? Good morning, Anne. I'm great. I'm really excited to be here with you this morning. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, and I'm so excited about our guest and our topic today. Tell us what's on the menu this morning. Today on the menu, we're going to be talking about Manitoba's recently implemented mandatory code of conduct, and we're going to be talking about that with the mayor of West St. Paul. Joining us to dig in on this topic, we have Cheryl Christian, Mayor of the Regional Municipality of West St. Paul. Good morning, Cheryl. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Anne. Good morning. So happy that you can join us to talk about this today. Maybe to start, you could give listeners a little bit about your background. And I know you joined West St. Paul's Council in 2014. What's your background? What brought you to the council table? We had a lot of uh, changes going on in our community, a lot of growth, and we had some big projects going on. And uh, my house was in an area where there was a big project going on. And I didn't like how the information was being communicated to residents. I thought that more could be done to involve residents in the changes and in the projects, more notice, more involvement. And so I threw my name in to run for councillor and was elected and had no idea what was before me. And, uh, and it was a real learning curve. And after four years on council, then I uh, took a crack at mayor. And so I've been mayor for three and a half years now. And it's been an exciting learning curve. Uh, that's for sure. But I, uh, my background is university instructor. And I was working on my master's in sociology, criminology, and finished my PhD coursework. So I was coming to the council table uh, with experience in research and wanting to bring that critical analysis approach um, to the job and to the role. And uh, and as a younger mayor uh, in my 40s, very active on social media, very involved in that sense. And I wanted to bring that to the role of councillor and mayor as well. And so we really uh, engaged residents and I've been able to bring that forward to to really communicate in a very different way than we had in a rural community. So that was really what brought me to the table. And the excitement of local government has has kept me at the table. So what was it that when you were elected as mayor, I know you had some objectives that you stated at the time you wanted to see some changes. Tell us about that. A lot of my objectives um, when I ran for mayor were tied to the growth in our community. So we've recently been named among the top 10 of the fastest growing communities uh, across Canada. We had a 25% growth during the last census period. So that's been really challenging for a community that's gone from 2,000 homes to to, uh, we have 4,000 homes in the queue coming up. Um, And so a really small community that's had such rapid growth. So a lot of my strategies were around how do we navigate that change within the 
community. So it was um, open decision making. How do we bring more people to the council table to have a say in that growth? What do these new developments look like? How do they have input into that? So we expanded our council chambers to have 50% more people and then COVID hit. (laughs) And so we had all this room to accommodate more people and nobody could come to our meetings. So um, it was actually a blessing. Uh, We used to have uh, anywhere from two to five to 10 people come to our council meetings. Um, We had changed the time of our meetings, made them later to have people come. But COVID really allowed us to go virtual. We were the first municipality to hold a public hearing in Manitoba virtually. And in the last two years now, we've had over 9,000 views of our council meetings. So instead of having two people attend our council meetings, we have on average 150 views. Um, So I'm really proud of that. We had promised open decision making and we can't get any more open than that. So um, all of our nonsense, you know, that's the other uh, flip side of that coin. All of uh, all of the council nonsense sometimes is recorded and on there for all time, too. Uh, But I'm really proud of that. We 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 kept our promise. Um, We wanted well-planned and well-managed development. And so we'd asked developers to to go to the community and hold open houses and all of them stepped up and they have, and it's a lot more money and it's a lot more work. But by the time, you know, the equipment comes and the shovels are in the ground, residents know exactly what is going there and they've adapted and they've made changes to their plans. So I'm really proud of that. Most developers do two to three open houses before even coming to council for approval on their developments. So that's been really big. There's no surprises. And, and prior to that, I have to say, it would be, you know, the 72 hours and what kind of development is on the agenda and residents would have no idea and council half the time would have no idea as well. So with big developments and the things that we've got going on, uh, we've really opened that up. So those are some things I'm really proud of. And, and we said we were going to do a community strategic plan. And within the last within this term, that's really what I'm most proud of. Um, we had never had a community strategic plan. We did what many municipalities do, you sit down at the beginning of your term and say, what would we like to do in the next four years? We brought in uh, an expert company that has 35 years experience. They held uh, four focus groups with us, uh, 700 participants from our community, huge response survey, and all our community helped us decide what our priorities are uh, for the next five to 10 years. So I'm really proud of that. The direction the council has is from the community. That's fantastic. And it's a great tie-in to... uh... Uh, the topic that we're going to be talking about today, too. It's so exciting, too. And that's why Susan and I wanted to do this podcast, because we love local government. And I can feel your passion, how excited you are to actually make those things that were a priority into reality, the community involvement. It's so it's so exciting. But as we all know, there's challenges with local government as well. And code of conduct, mandatory code of conduct, was implemented in Manitoba recently. And you've had some experience with that, Cheryl. So just if you can give us a little bit of background on your experience with code of conduct in Manitoba. Sure. It's been a long process to get us to that point uh, where Manitoba has that mandatory code of conduct. Um, Between 2014 and 2018, while I was on council, there were a lot of elected officials across Manitoba that really noticed the gap and that all code of conducts were very different. There was nothing mandatory. Many didn't have and those that did, all of it looked really very different. Some passed bylaws, some had policies. And so myself and and a number of men and women across the province, we went to the province and said, we really need some help here. 
There's workplace health and safety that covers regular employees, but anybody stepping up to an elected official role, there is no protection, there's no coverage, there's no set of guidelines that really should be in place. So it was a lot of back and forth um, with the provincial government, and I, I commend them for taking that step. They looked to other provinces, Ontario and Alberta, and tried to develop um, something that would work in Manitoba. And they were under a lot of pressure from elected officials to help. You know, it typically complaints went to the ombudsman, and that's not their area. Um, so this has been a real gap. So I commend them in in filling that. And what they did was they tried to be preventative. And so when we're elected, we have, I believe, six months to to do the uh, training. And they've got an online training program. I think it takes about three hours. And you go through and it talks about this is acceptable conduct. And here's examples of not acceptable conduct. And here's how ways that you should work through that. And and there can be apologies and mediation or so. um, That's our first step now is that we're going to try and be preventative in Manitoba and have everyone take this. We know that uh, that's not always going to work, unfortunately, in the business that we're in and really in any job, there's going to be issues come up. So we, we have a mandatory code of conduct bylaw that has to be passed and they provided a template for that. So you really should go to any municipality across Manitoba and we should have something very similar. Um, so that's a really good step forward that it's really clearly outlined the guidelines for acceptable behavior towards staff, towards each other, towards the public. And that's really important to make that very clear. And then they've created a process when there is misconduct of how that process will look. And that was one of the things that even the municipalities that took the steps to have a code of conduct, and we had that in West St. Paul, we had created our own, then then somebody there would be misconduct. And what do you do? How do you go forward? So they really, with input from elected officials across Manitoba and lawyers of how they could make that all work, created these steps forward. So if there is a complaint, the step is that you would file that complaint with your CAO, um, who initially the province was going to have do the investigations, and we were able to talk to them about what a bad idea that would be. So anyone listening would know what a horrible idea that would be to have the CAO uh, investigate uh, his own counsel or her own counsel. So they realized the significance of that. So now a complaint goes to the CAO. And they submit it to an intake officer that's hired by the province and that went out to tender. And so they bid on that and we submit and they have seven days to determine whether or not this is something that is a a valid complaint to be mediated or investigated. And if they determine that, it goes back to uh, the CAO and comes to council and it moves forward as mediation or investigation, depending on if the parties can agree. And then the province has provided a list of companies that could mediate or investigate. So now we're taking away some of the bias of let's just go pick our own companies, right? Here's the approved list. And and you move forward in that way. And an investigator reaches out or mediator and you go through that process. And then it comes back to council as well. So it's a really clear process. That's been really, that's been really positive. There's still challenges, but it's been very positive. That's good. And I'm laughing because as a CAO, uh, investigating your own counsel is what we call a CLM or career limiting move because that's that's pretty standard. And I know in Quebec, they have a different outside third party that actually does the initial investigation to see if the code of conduct complaint is frivolous or vexatious. What I really like that Manitoba's done is the mandatory training. How effective do you think that has been, Cheryl? So far, that's only been 
in place since 2020. So everybody's done their mandatory training and we've only kind of gone one round of that. It'll be interesting long-term to see that. I think it's been helpful that our um, Association for Elected Officials, uh, AMM, um, has done training and different things to supplement that, which has really been helpful. The biggest thing is that this conversation had started, that the legislation's in place and now the momentum is moving to understand what's acceptable and what's not. We have a long way to go. But I think the training has certainly opened people's eyes that thought those things were acceptable in the past um, and really, really clearly defined debate versus harassment, right? Debate versus bad conduct, right? Um, and that was really gray for a lot of people in this area. Oh, that just got to be heated debate at the table. It's been like this for years in so-and-so's community. Um, actually, that's not okay. Or it's not okay to yell at the CAO in a meeting or those things that kind of seem like, you know, we'll put it under an umbrella of heated debate um, has really been clear now that that's not okay. So I've, I've had people that have been on council many years, 30 plus years in their communities on council in one way or another, say, I've really learned a lot. And, and there's things that our council now understands that are not okay that, that was acceptable. So I think it's going to take time, but the training absolutely is helpful. Ontario implemented mandatory codes of conduct for council uh, a couple of years earlier. And, uh, you know, with a couple of years experience under their belt, um, it sounds like maybe Manitoba learned from some of the things, the experience in Ontario um, have the, the criteria, I think, that Manitoba has for what constitutes a qualified integrity commissioner. So there's been a lot of discussion in Ontario about that as, you know, being one of the problems. And I know you've had some experience in your own municipality with this. What has that looked like? Unfortunately, we have. We've had a few code of conducts here this term, which is unfortunate. You you hope those things go in play, into place and that you never have to use them. Our, our experience has been a little challenging. Um, people's expertise in the role of municipal government is limited unless you've been in it or you work with it all the time. So HR companies are, are on a list that are that understand HR issues and harassment and investigation. So, you know, kudos to them. And they, they have years of experience and, and education and knowledge and expertise, but, but limited often in the area of municipal government. And we're a unique uh, beast, right? Uh, and so to investigate, you know, uh, our process and, and what we do, there's a lot of learning on their part of, of what municipal government involves the, you know, what do you mean you have three votes on this and three readings? And what did that mean? And things that we take for granted that an investigator comes in and, and doesn't understand, well, how come you just didn't do this or do this? Well, we're not a normal workplace. Um, our CAO reports to us, the other employees report to the CAO, how's this all working? And so I, I find it is challenging. And I'm not surprised Ontario's having those challenges, because you really have to have a solid understanding of municipal government to come in and start investigating in the midst of it. And it's interesting to see, will there be consistency? It's quite new to Manitoba on, on the code of conducts and, and what investigators are coming back with. Many are reluctant to make recommendations on sanctions, which makes it really challenging because how do you impose sanctions on your own fellow council members? It's nice to get those recommendations as an HR expert. What do you think would be appropriate. And so that's been kind of challenging. Um, ultimately, because council makes final votes on these reports, 
are they accepted? Are they, are they not? So there's still a lot of challenges along the way. It's a, it's a really great first step, but the companies that come in and investigate really have to have an expertise in, in municipal government. And we're not, I'm not seeing that yet, but I, I think that we'll get there. And one of the things too, Cheryl, through my research, because my research question was enhancing the trust and respect of CAO council relationship. So I found that a lot of the problem with this relationship was the lack of role clarity, but then role clarity had sub factors that eroded it. And one of those was code of conduct infractions. Many of the council that I interviewed um, didn't feel comfortable holding their fellow councillors accountable. And because of the way the code of conduct is and that it has to go to council and that final decision, there's not, they felt that there wasn't like a lot of teeth in the legislation, but it was also how do we police ourselves as councils? Can you speak to that a bit? It's challenging. There's a couple of things there. And, and we found that role clarity issue significant as well. And so um, we had tried to take steps at the beginning after we were elected to do a lot of team building and to bring in an HR expert. And so in West St. Paul, we developed a role clarity agreement. This is the CAO's role. This is our role. And it's not something that I've seen other municipalities do. I, I want to say it's been helpful. It's been helpful to most of council, but there'll always be some that really don't understand the lanes that we're supposed to be in, right? The CAO is in a very different lane than the rest of us. And what's your role? And we need to stay out of that. And, and there's administration and operations and governance and, and years and years of, you know, experts like George Cuff telling us that. And there's still some doubt around that, unfortunately. Um, so we started our term off that way. The, the challenges of reporting on your fellow council members, yeah, it's, it's, it's very challenging, but it's um, the incivility now and, and what we're reading across Canada, Ontario, Alberta, Manitoba, we're, we're all in this in terms of municipalities where there's incivility, there, there has to be accountability. So it's, it's been very challenging to deal with that. It's, it's challenging at the council table to say a report's gone in. You know, we've we've made every effort to have informal resolution, which is part of the legislation. You have to demonstrate that you've tried to informally resolve that. If you don't, you know, they don't want to be flooded with frivolous and vexatious complaints just on bickering or whatever's going on on council. So have you made every effort to informally resolve this? And then if not, that's that's that next step. It's really challenging. And we we have the public watching and it's a learning curve for the public too. So you know, why are you spending our tax dollars complaining on each other? Well, and so we, we've done newsletter articles to explain what this means, right? You don't send your children to school to be bullied and, and you shouldn't expect anyone to work in a workplace where there's bullying. So it's really been an education for our residents of people need to be accountable. They need to be respectful. Our municipal staff deserve to be treated respectfully. And, and we really have a legal and moral obligation to call that out. And so I've, I've really spent a lot of time this term where we've included that in newsletters to have our residents understand that in the world that we're in today, it's you can't simply ignore that at the table. You can't ignore harassment, misconduct. It's gone right up to the prime minister's office of, you know, are, is there been misconduct ignored in the military? So for people to really understand, we have a legal obligation to address that. You made a, an interesting point there about the cost and also the public perception. And I think, you know, uh, the experience in Ontario, in some cases, there's been an abuse of the system and uh, a perception that 
you know, perhaps the legislation, perhaps this mechanism has been weaponized for political purposes. Not everyone is uncomfortable putting those sanctions or, or making those attacks in that way, using this as a tool to make those attacks. And in the case of one small municipality, I think like a small municipality over a period of two years, half a million dollars racked up in costs related to hiring an investigator and and so on. Do you think there's a danger of that? Do you think there's enough safeguards in uh, what's in place in Manitoba to prevent that from happening? I do. And and there's a couple issues there. We, we've certainly seen where investigators um, charge differently. So that racking up like half a million in some ways does not surprise me, um, where it, there needs to be some standardization that municipalities aren't taken advantage of by companies that come in and charge crazy by the hour rates, right? That these can often be really simple, straightforward investigations and that, you know, the entire organization does not need to be interviewed on some things, right? So how do we put checks and balances in place that these things are done because they're important, that we have investigations completed or mediation, but municipalities aren't taken advantage of and here's your bill, 35000 at the end. And and I've heard a few across Manitoba say, you know, what was what was a code of conduct bill for you guys on an investigation? Like this was 35,000 and well, ours was six. So there's, there's definitely going to be some issues there going forward of what that looks like to make sure this is fair in terms of the, the public perception and the weaponizing. So far, there's been the checks and balances in place. And if the intake reviewer has that criteria, um, three were dismissed out of our community that were, quote, frivolous and vexatious. You know, there was no attempt at informal resolution. This is not an issue of harassment, you know, and, and that went back. And those are public. And so I think they've done a good job to say, you have to bring this to the table. You talk about it in camera, but you come out of camera with resolution. So if if you've got somebody on council that's trying to weaponize this and they're submitting complaints like crazy, we make that clear. We've had three and it's $300 every time that's submitted to the taxpayers and they're frivolous and vexatious and they're coming back like that. So that's made public. I think if it's if it's under the the rug and you're not bringing that out in the public meetings, you know, we're accountable to that. Yep, this is the cost. This is what's happening. And you know, we're ultimately accountable to our residents. So we try and be as transparent as we can, keeping the details of investigations confidential. But the processes and and the letters of whether or not it's accepted or not accepted, we we put those on our agendas and our residents get to see those when we've dealt with them. Just to that point, Cheryl, it's interesting to me, you've been very clear that you public participation is very key. So what are you hearing from the stakeholders about this code of conduct and what kind of feedback are you getting from the stakeholders? It's mixed. It's mixed. And, and that's really why we've put in a couple of newsletter articles out to our community, really simplifying what is code of conduct? What does that mean? What's the responsibility that we have? Why is this important? Really simplifying it because it, it gets to be complicated. It, it's been mixed in, in residents concerned about, I, th- I think we're over 60,000 now in West St. Paul. So what does that mean? Where, where's that money go? Like what, what's happening here um, and why we have that responsibility? Um, I think it's once people know and are informed, it's been positive. Okay, that makes sense. 
right? This is how people need to be treated with respect. Nobody wants to take these steps if they don't have to. I think what's really been helpful is we've talked a lot about what we've done to prevent getting there. So this isn't something taken lightly. We had five team building exercises. You know, these are all the steps that we try and take to make sure that we do get along, not just the course that we take as mandatory through the province, but here's all the additional steps we did as a new council as as we move our way through to try and figure things out. But ultimately, if somebody's not going to follow the code of conduct, if there's going to be issues, disrespect to staff and harassment, then we have to move forward on that. So I think the reception from the community has been good. It's It's been surprising to them. It's new to us as elected officials, this new mandatory process. And it's surprising to the community that, you know, there's the, this seems like a waste of money. What's happening? Can't they just get along? Um, but overall, I think it's been positive. I have to say, I've been rather disappointed uh, in some provincial officials and some residents of the community where it's treated differently if it's women, right? Um, so that if the complaint is uh, a woman making a complaint of harassment against a man, that's, you know, just really awful. And if it's women that are involved in making the complaints, you know, this is some kind of cat fight and you guys should just get it, get your act together. So that's been really shocking and disappointing to me. And some of that stuff's come from women, surprisingly enough. So we still have a long way to go to understand that misconduct and harassment isn't, you know, men yelling at women. There's there's lots of, sadly, women that are, are not conducting themselves appropriately either. So there's still a huge learning curve in a lot of different areas about incivility and misconduct. One, one step at a time, we're getting there. I think that, you know, an, an important takeaway from this too, that, you know, we can, we can put these mechanisms in place and, you know, try to curb these incidents of uh, harassment and bullying, but there's a long road of education and we can see in the public all the time now, these incidents where in spite of anti-hate legislation and all these things that we still have a long way to go. For sure. And one of the things that we try and emphasize is what are the implications, right? The so what of this. So so what? So nobody's going to run for these positions. If you can't feel safe and come to work and do your job and represent your community without being harassed, then we're going to have trouble finding people. And if we look at the stats, we're already having trouble finding people. Uh, there was a lot of uh, people acclaimed in the last election in Manitoba. So how do we go forward and encourage people that this is a really exciting job? It's great. I, I love what I do. How do we encourage more people to take this on if they're worried, am I going to be safe? What does this look like? Um, so the implications there, we all have amazing staff that work for our communities and they're the backbone of, of all our municipalities behind the scenes. If we can't protect them, we're not going to have great people work for us. And we have great things going on in our municipalities and huge responsibilities of infrastructure and multi-millions of dollars in responsibility. And if we can't ensure that people are safe in our workplace, we're not going to have people want to work here either. And we really set the tone as elected officials and, and CAOs in our community of what's acceptable. So if it's not acceptable in our building, in our office, it's not acceptable anywhere. If we let that go and we and it festers and there's those things going on, then, then it's going to appear everywhere. So it's challenging, right? And we're at kind of the cusp of dealing with something that's been ignored and hidden for so many years. We're making really good strides though. And it's important to keep telling people, you know, the implications of not doing anything about it and why it's so important to address it. My current Reeve, he, he said something very strong to me the other day, and it was about CAO and council being a leadership team. And you're so right. What kind of tone are we setting 
so that everybody else can see this. But we have lost our civility. So one of the things I wanted to know is when we think about people who want to run for local government and make those changes in your community, because that's why we do it. That's why we all do it. We're passionate about it. But what can we do to educate people who are running better so they're prepared for their roles? That's a good question. And and it's challenging. I, the, the education in terms of the roles and, and what your role would involve as a council member, mayor or council, really should be clear before you're elected. Uh, most of us get elected and then have an orientation if we're lucky. Our, our community's done an amazing job and our administration's fantastic. And we have a great orientation and and we've brought in George Cuff for the last two terms and, and he orientates the whole works of us on uh, the role of CAO and the role of council members. So that would really be first of getting elected and knowing what your job is. My job is not to stand in ditches and and assess the drainage. I'm not an engineer. And, and we have a lot in our community that still are old school because many rural communities, that's what happened. The Reeve or mayor came out and they were standing in the ditch with you. So it's really educating people and council members themselves about our role of governance and, and policy. And, and the issue of, of harassment and incivility on council, as well as in the public, is going to be a really tough one to address. And, and we've been talking a lot about that as elected officials. We were recently at a convention for AMM and had a, a women's discussion panel and it really came up about how social media has changed this so much and COVID has made things so negative and people with, you know, anonymous identities can go on and, and just have hateful, you know, social media posts about elected officials. And I have had so many people in the last four years say to me, I don't know why you do this. I would never do this. And I'm running around trying to tell people this is something that you should do. This is important. This is giving back to your community. If we don't find a way to address that component, not just at the table, um, where you know I assure people there are mechanisms in place now, and that you have to be in a place that doesn't tolerate it. I'll do everything that I can in my role as mayor to have team building, to work with administration and work with my council to address issues that come up. But at the end of the day, if there is going to be harassment, if there's going to be code of conduct issues, know that those are not going to be ignored. And, and so people need to know that coming in. I think we've set a good tone that way, that it's going to be a safe place one way or another. But what's holding people back from running is the incivility from the outside coming in as well, that um, there's been some really challenging and and rude things said online. A, a couple of weeks ago, I had a, a boots incident. And so it's kind of, um, I've made light of it a bit and, and kind of worked with it. But we... Um, we had a flooding issue and, and somebody didn't like our response. And so they posted a picture of me online and, and circled me in, in high heel boots and said, uh, you know, these are the boots she wears when she comes out and looks at flood situations. And, and so I responded back and, and said, no, those aren't the boots I wear when I go and assess flooding and meet with residents. Those are the boots I wear when we're trying to capture funding from the provincial government. Those are the boots I wear when we're at these meetings, right? And so I had a conversation about it and called it out in the most respectful way to go, no, that's not acceptable, right? And, you know, made, made light of it. And the next day I was at a hockey game and, and posted a picture online and said, these are the boots I'm wearing today to watch my son play hockey because, you know, I wear many shoes, right, in my role. And so it really generated a conversation with a lot of people in our community on my social media page about, yeah, like, whoa, what is this? Um, so figuring out ways to respectfully call out that 
that kind of conduct. And, and a lot of people deal with a lot worse than that. So why is somebody going to want to run to, you know, to see that online, especially I have kids. And so we've had conversations about that. Yeah, people say some not nice things and create fake identities. And there's a lot of not happy people out there. So we're going to need to find a way to deal with that, or we're not going to have people run. And that's really going to be a challenge. Really want to commend you for that because I think that's a very, you know, courageous approach you've taken. And, you know, as you said, there's people in leadership positions all across the country dealing with really, you know, very difficult and often frightening things, frightening for them, frightening for their families. It's a challenge to deal with it in a way that is, as you said, you've made you've made light of it and actually kind of turned it around and turned it into a positive. Uh, I love it. These boots are made for walking. And that's what, you know, many people would say in that situation. But I, I think you should be commended for that. That's the kind of leadership that communities need. And, you know, as you said, we need to see more examples and see people encouraged to take on those roles and deal with it in that sort of very professional way that you've shown. I'm excited to see what kind of new strategies come out because it's something challenging that we're all dealing with. So I'd be really excited to see strategies that come out. And and I've heard a lot of men and women say, you know, I, I, I take this, I'll just have a thicker skin approach. And my recent comments were, no, that's not acceptable. And And what really alarmed me and triggered for me was watching the news with my kids and our top health officials in the middle of COVID made comments that um, getting death threats was just something that was part of their job now and something every day. And this this is our top health officials that are providing updates on the number of COVID cases and here's where you get your vaccines. And, and death threats had become a normal part of their life. No, there's not the thicker skin for this. It's absolutely unacceptable. It's unacceptable at our council table to not feel safe. It's unacceptable to have that come from the outside. I really think that we're going to need to have broader strategies, and and I certainly do my part to call it out and and in the res- in a respectful way to draw attention that this is not acceptable, so that other community members go, yeah, that's not acceptable. It's not acceptable to talk to our mayor that way. It's not acceptable to talk to our children that way, or anybody else. It's not acceptable to fight with my neighbor and say I'm going to kill them. Um, so how do we? How do we create that in society where this is not okay now? What are some really simple strategies of Facebook not allowing anonymous identities that allows you to do that? There needs to be different strategies brought into place because it's not just our workplace, it's everywhere. We are so happy that you gave us time this morning, Cheryl, to share your strategies. And I just love what you're doing. And it just gives me hope for local government. It really does. Yes, absolutely. Thanks so much for your time today, Cheryl. It's been a real pleasure for us talking with you. Thanks for joining us in the Local Gov Cafe. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to share it on social media or tell a friend. And we hope you'll join us next time as we welcome our next guest. You won't want to miss it. (laughs) 